0: If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is going to be our text this morning. Specifically there, verses um, 38 through 48. So, At the beginning of the year, we started a series of messages uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount. and uh, so, uh, And where we're finding ourselves at today is kind of an interesting place in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, there are a lot of... Popular phrases that people like to repeat from the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe the most popular phrase of all, could, would you guess which one it is? It's judge not that you be not judged. Uh, that's probably one of the most popular phrases that people will point to from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus spoke. Uh, but there's some other phrases in there, and we're specifically going to see these phrases in our text this morning. And it's this, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies. And I want to start off this morning with a question for us to focus in on. And here's this question Just because something is practically true, does it make it theologically correct? Uh, So let me rephrase that again, say it again. Just because something is practically true, does it make it theologically correct? And I believe this question is of extreme importance for us as we consider the text that we're going through this morning. The truth is, is that these verses have been ripped away from their context and applied to social settings, and they've lost their true meaning. Uh, There have been two men in particular that have taken principles from these verses, taken them away from their context, and used them to bring about massive social reform and these two men are, are, are necessarily giants in the world. One first is on well, our own nation, Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, And Martin Luther King, Jr., of course, we know was a a spearheaded part of the civil rights movement that took place in the United States of America. There's no question that there were issues of racism and divide in our nation. And Martin Luther King, Jr. took the ideas from this passage of scripture and came what was known as non-retaliatory, non-conformation. They just wouldn't conform. They wouldn't respond. And, And who was Martin Luther influenced by? He was actually influenced by Gandhi, who brought about great social reform. In India. And Gandhi was first given a Bible when he was in college in England. And he promised this friend, this unnamed friend, that he was going to read the Bible. And he did. And he found himself in the pages of the Old Testament and, and said himself that it rather bored him. But he made this promise that he was going to read Scripture. And, and so he, he was to read through the Bible. And uh, so as he was reading through, he came to the pages of the New Testament. And it didn't take him long and when he got into the Gospel of Matthew to get to these words that we're going to dig through this morning. And, and here's the thing. What happened with the Sermon on the Mount and in particular, the text that we're going to read this morning is that it resonated with Gandhi. Why? Because there was something from his religious upbringing that he, were, that he connected with. And, and there's what's known in the Hindu religion as something called the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, and it's a passage of scripture they point to that extolled the virtues of self-denial and the face of opposition. But here's what we've got to understand and grasp. What they were doing this for was so that they could receive good karma and that good karma would thus bring about what would be known as uh, righteousness or dharma. Uh, And so they thought that this would earn them something. Gandhi himself said this about this passage we're going to read. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, such passages as resist not him that is evil, but whosoever smiteth thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also and love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you that he may be sons of father, uh, of your father which is in heaven i was simply overjoyed and found my own opinion confirmed where i least expected it as a matter of fact gandhi would have considered himself a sermon on the mount christian And the fact is is that there are people that look at these verses and believe, well, if we can just live these verses out, if these are virtues that we hold on to, then we're good people. And and we're going to see when we get to the end of that. That's ripping this passage out of context and giving it meaning that it was never supposed to have. Let's look at the passage. We're going to begin Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you uh, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let me pray for us. Father, may you guide us through this time in your word. And may your spirit do his work in our hearts. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Once again, let me ask that question. Just because something is practically true, does it make it theologically correct? I learned a truth a long time ago while going through Bible college that the Bible never says less in one place, but it may say more. And another truth I learned is that the Bible can never mean what it never meant. And so if it never meant what it has been turned into, then we've lost the meaning of what takes place. There have been massive social changes that have taken place through those two people that I've mentioned, but is that what Jesus intended for us to grab a hold of? You see, there's a danger in in taking something out of context like that and applying principles from that out of context truth and then holding every Christian responsible to live that way. And that's what many people have done. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher with this passage of scripture, he gave some rules of interpretation. If, if, it'll be up on the screen. It's, it's really wordy. If you want to pull your phone out and snap a picture of that, let me know. Or if you want me to send it to you, let me know. If you're on the version app, you already have it there. Uh, what we also what we have to understand is that, that we must never regard this sermon as a code of ethics that every follower of Christ is to live by. If it becomes a code of ethics, then what we've done is we've earned that righteousness that we point to, right? We've created another system of law. These teachings must never be applied mechanically or as a kind of rule of thumb. We don't weigh every issue in life up to the passage of scripture that we just read. Uh, If our interpretation makes a teaching appear to be ridiculous or leads us to a ridiculous position, then it's patently a wrong interpretation. It's wrong. It can't be true. That's the logic thing, right? Jesus doesn't intend for us uh, just to allow ourselves to be punching bags. There's a context that he's talking about here. Number four: If our interpretation makes the teaching appear to be impossible, it's wrong. It's impossible to believe that Jesus would have a stand-by and allow people to destroy everything, our families, everything. It's not just not the case. Number five: We must remember that if our interpretation of any one of these contradicts the plain and obvious teaching in Scripture elsewhere, then it just can't be true. Some passage of scripture to think about. Actually, Roman uh, Noah. You remember the, the covenant that God had with Noah? He, he was the last, uh, uh, right? He built the ark and he came out of the ark. When he came out of the ark, God said to Noah, if man takes the life of man by man, he shall be killed. So Now, now some people have taken this passage of scripture and said that we should no longer have capital punishment. It can't be true. In the book of Nehemiah, men are encouraged to be ready to fight, for their, fight their enemies to protect their families. Nehemiah chapter 4 So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans, the men really, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Does that sound like just standing aside and letting evil take place? No. So it can't mean that. In Romans 13, we've learned that the Lord has established governing authorities to be a, a minister of justice and that, that if you do right, that minister of justice will leave you alone. But if you do wrong, then he doesn't bear the sword in vain. So, so we know this can't be applied that way. So if that's not what the passage of Scripture means, what does it mean can, can be the question that we really have to ask. And, and I found that the key is actually in the very last verse of what we just read. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Doesn't that verse seem a little bit out of place? When you read that verse next to everything else that's in there, right? We have things like turn the other cheek, go give away your coat, go the extra mile. And what does the giving to the one who begs and and loaning to the one who's in need, what does that have to do with these other areas or these other illustrations? And it's clear Really, the answer is found in, in what we find Jesus saying, as recorded in Matthew chapter 16. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And I can maybe begin to read through some of the thoughts because I had these same thoughts. What does this have to do with the context of the Sermon on the Mount? Let's get back and look at these illustrations that he used. Jesus said, an eye for an eye. You've heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you. In fact, the law did declare these things. It's found in Leviticus. It's also found in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. But as you read this in context, it becomes very clear what's taking place. This isn't for us as individuals to go out and if somebody takes something from us to take something from them it's not for us to go out as individuals and if they steal from us to steal from them or if they what well, you know that's not the idea actually the idea here is that that in the system of law god set up laws for people to live by and if somebody broke that law they were to be taken to a court of law and when it said eye for eye tooth for tooth hand for hand foot for foot that was meant to be carried out by judges and magistrates not individual people and, and here's what the people of israel were doing with that they took it as individuals were almost expected to retaliate whenever anything was taken from them whenever any harm came to them and so this was really a way in which Jesus was was restraining retaliation or the law was meant for that and Jesus was pointing that it was to restrain retaliation you're not expected to to um, return kind for kind he says turn the other cheek When we see this passage of scripture, we get in our mind this idea of somebody walking up and slapping us in the face. All right, guys, let me give a pretty quick test to you. If somebody walks up to you and slaps you in the face, how many of you are turning to them the other one? Most of us are ready to fight at that point. We're wired that way, right? We are. As men, we're wired that way. And I know some ladies that are wired that way as well. Here's what we've got to grasp and understand what was happening here. In this Middle Eastern society, first century Middle Eastern society, one of the greatest... Forms of disrespect you could have had was for somebody to walk up to you and backhand you. This wasn't an open hand slap. This was a backhand slap. And the only recourse that someone had to retaliate was to take them to a court of law and basically sue for defamation of character. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, guys, when that happens to you, when that happens, don't feel as though you need to respond. Turn the other cheek as well. But for what reason? There's a context that we've got to grasp. Does this mean that we're never to respond to things like that? No, we'll see a little bit deeper what the context is here in a few moments. But we also know this, that there are times that we're supposed to resist evil. There are. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so we know that he's not just declaring that we're just supposed to roll over and be punching bags for anyone and everyone in the world. So, but we can't explain away this next next passage of scripture. Romans chapter 12. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in, in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And how many of us, when we see that passage of Scripture, we get in mind that we're supposed to endure suffering, and while we're enduring it, I'm just going to keep heaping those burning coals on their head because I hope they suffer with the same kind of pain that I've suffered with. That's not what it means. It means that in living that way and responding that way, what you're actually doing is condemnation and guilt will come on them from the Holy Spirit there. And that should and hopefully would lead them to repentance in Christ. It says, let them have your cloak. With this illustration, Jesus references the idea uh, that if somebody sues you for your tuna, give your cloak as well. And we got to understand in this culture, when somebody would borrow money from one another, they would give things as collateral. And one of those things would have been a, a-, a cloak. Exodus 22 if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So Jesus saying, if somebody takes you to court, listen, just will it, give it away. It would be better to have dishonor than to see me dishonored, is essentially what's going to happen here. So, under the law of Moses, a man cannot be forced to give that away, but Jesus says, give it away. See, we've got to be very careful here in applying this idea to every offense. And, and when we take it, this and apply it to our current context as followers of Christ, here's what Jesus was saying. Listen, don't retaliate and don't be overly concerned about your rights. As Christians, haven't we gotten caught up in that a little bit? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves and we look at ourselves in the mirror, haven't you heard from us over the last few years that that our rights are something that we're really focused in on let me give you an example i'm not sure if you're aware of this but we're coming off the heels of a worldwide pandemic and depending upon who you're listening to we're still in that pandemic and there's still worse yet to come and and when that pandemic first hit our world and our nation we had people stand in front of a tv i remember it well they stood in front of a tv and the dr burke said no matter what we do by by this time in august there's going to be 2.2 million people dead and man, we we're like, wow, two million people dead, no matter what we do. And so they asked people to take two weeks to slow the curve. And so many of us as Christians, we decided that, that love required of us to take those steps in order to make sure those things didn't happen. But man, something happened in those two weeks. Those two weeks quickly turned to six weeks, and those six weeks quickly turned to this indefinite period of time. And and then we started to notice things as followers of Christ, right? Well, we can't, they don't want us to meet in church, and depending upon what state you lived in, they mandated that you not meet in church, but you could, uh, but 500 people could be at Walmart. You know, 500 people could be at Home Depot or Lowe's. And all of a sudden, you know, that became, worship became non-essential. And so in Lionsville, when we were trying to decide what we were going to do, we, like a lot of churches, decided, you know, love requires of us for us to take these steps in, in order to protect our neighbors and, our, and those people we love. And so we didn't meet for a period of six weeks. And then we came back together, and here's what we decided as a church. This wasn't about us demanding our rights. This was about us deciding as a church at that point that worship is essential, It's essential to the life of a follower of Christ. And yes, we understand that people are sick. And yes, we understand that things are going on. But we decided that we were going to meet, to worship together, not as a thing of demanding our rights, not as a thing of thumbing our nose at authority, but as the same thing as us saying like, well, Daniel. When they told Daniel not to pray, what did the text say? Daniel went to his room and he prayed, well, how? As he always had as he always had. And and so we're not demanding rights. We're just understanding that those rights given by men aren't the primary thing. Our expectations for worship were. And, And so that's how we came down on that issue. He says, go the extra mile. Uh, to the Romans, uh, I mean, to the, the Jews, the Romans occupied, and so they could force a Jewish person to carry their gear for up to one mile. You, you get in, in mind that Simon of Cyrene that was forced to carry the cross of Christ, and, and Jesus declared, when this happens, when they force you to do this, go with them too. Go with them too, because when you do, you're going to make me look better. And he says, give to those who beg and borrow. listen, we get so caught up not only in demanding our rights, we also fail to, to understand that God has blessed us. He's blessed us as human beings with this great amount of blessing. Uh, and so as a people and as a group, and some are blessed more than others, but there, there is something about us that we get caught up not only on our rights, but what we've earned. And since we've earned it, it's ours. And since it's ours, we get a little stingy sometimes with what's ours. Did you know that there was a provision in the law of Moses that that they were to leave the edges of the fields for people to come alongside of? And and what the farmers didn't harvest, that the people were to harvest for themselves. That's important. Because we've been trained in this nation in this world to understand uh, that that it's our job to care for everyone and and here's what we've done. We've become angry about that and we've decided that since the nation and and there's welfare and everything else is to care for that we we've stopped seeing our responsibilities and and we've just gotten angry and bitter at times. But there's another part of that principle. Did you know when the people were supposed to come and to the edges of those fields that the farmers left them there for them to harvest for themselves not for everything to be given to them. In our world today, we've not only left the edges of the field, we have we have them harvested and made it possible for people to do nothing and to be cared for by the rest of society. In his book, Our Culture, What's Left of It, British psychologist Theodore Dalrymple writes of two Frenchmen who in the early 1800s, tra- one traveled to Russia and one traveled to America. And they predicted with this unbelievable accuracy what was going to take place in both of those societies just by watching them the one predicted that Russia would fall to great war and they did and then that's where the rise of communism happened and and a man by the name I'm hoping I'm saying it right because they were both Frenchmen a man by the name of Tokyoville was a lawyer and a judge and he visited America and in a passage that that United Prophetic with psychological insight he wrote about what would take place. He described the future soul of a man under seemingly benevolent and democratic government that willingly labored for the happiness of the people, but chose to be the sole agent and only arbiter of that happiness. Such a government would supply the people with their necessities, facilitate their pleasures, manage their principal concerns. What would happen but to spare them of all care and thinking and all trouble of living? When this came to pass, The will of man will not be shattered, uh, but softened, bent, and guided. Men will not be forced to act, but prevented from acting. The government will not destroy, but prevent full human existence. It will will not tyrannize, but it will invenerate, extinguish, and stupefy a people. Did you hear what it's saying there? That's our society. At the same time, Jesus says to the follower of Christ, don't hold back when somebody begs. Don't be unwilling to give the one who asked to borrow. So, we've got to remember these words are not spoken in a vacuum. They're spoken in a context. Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12. Who were before you. It would seem to me as though Jesus is declaring right here in those verses, right after giving those kingdom values that we've spoken about guys, when you live this way, you're going to be persecuted. And and then as we continue to dig through this Sermon on the Mount, that when he's talking about turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving away your coat as well, being willing to, to, to give to those who beg and those who want to borrow, what he's talking about here is living. In a world where persecution takes place, it's a tough truth. But everything about the follower of Christ is tough. Luke 6 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And we know what Jesus was like when we dig through scripture and we see how he responded when he was wronged, when he was hit when he was cursed how did he respond first peter chapter 2 i'm going to begin at verse 21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what we're seeing here in context is Jesus declaring, listen, if you want to follow me, if you want to live in my kingdom, you've got to be the type of person that turns the other cheek when you're persecuted. That doesn't demand your rights. When men take away rights that they've given you, stay the course in your relationship with God. But don't find yourself trusting in the rights of mankind. Trust in me. That, doesn't, that isn't just worried about everything that God has provided. That we know he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And that if something is taken away from us, God is going to give us something that we need. And It's him. So, I'd like to close this morning with, with some lessons. First lesson is this. There's no eternal benefit in living this kind of life apart from Christ. None. Men like Martin Luther King, Jr., who you know, was a, was a, a, a preacher, uh, but, but also men like Gandhi who lived these principles out. And yet, Gandhi, who would never have surrendered his life to Jesus Christ as Lord, while he did some great things for humanity, that was not going to earn him any standing before God in heaven It just made him a good man with a strong resolve. Apart from Christ, you might be the type of person that does not seek to retaliate, that's willing to give away in order to keep the peace, that's willing to go the extra mile and even give to the needy without expecting anything in return. In fact, apart from Christ, you may even do that better than some Christians. But you know what? When you stand before God in that final judgment, he's not going to allow you to say, but Lord, I was better than the Christians who didn't do this. Now, apart from Christ, when you live that way, the only thing you're doing is making this world a better place to go to hell from. That's all. Romans three twenty three and through 25 gives us a reminder. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. All have sinned. You can't earn it back, your relationship back with God through good works. You must surrender to Christ as Lord. Living these principles out apart from Christ will not earn you a place in heaven. Second lesson, living out these kingdom values will place us in a position the model extra mile living. Here's what I mean by this. Remember, we we began at the beginning of the year going through these kingdom values. And and as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, it becomes very clear that what Jesus is doing here is he's unpacking those beatitudes, what they're called in scripture. But he's also unpacking what we've called these values uh, to live by. And usually every one of these things he points to in the Sermon on the Mount point to at least one, maybe two of the values. But I believe this is one that points to all of them. You see, when you're poor in spirit, you start off with this realization that your sin has broken you and has separated you from God. And you understand that there's nothing that you do that can deserve a relationship with Christ that we're broken. And that brokenness leads you to to mourning, to repentance. And, And you start to see other people differently when you understand your brokenness and your repentance. You see a world that's harassed like sheep without a shepherd and you're no longer demanding your way, demanding your rights. You're seeing life differently. You're repenting then you're meek, realizing that, that apart from Christ, we're nothing. And we all have this understanding where truth strength comes from as followers of Christ. We know that since Christ was persecuted, we'll be persecuted as well, that we need to stand in his strength, not our own, that we'll hunger and thirst for righteousness. We'll realize that this life is short and there's nothing on this earth that is promised. Therefore, instead of seeking our rights and demanding things, we'll understand that we've got this great opportunity to know Christ more and more every day that will understand our responsibility to be merciful. One who looks to the cross of Christ and gets mercy will give mercy and grace to others. That will have this purity of heart about us and it will help us to see people uh, as they are and, and will place us in a position and a desire to be in a position to lead them to Christ, which is that last thing, peacemaker. Ah, isn't that what Gandhi did? No not the kind of peace that Christ talks about. You see, you can have forced absence of conflict without any true heart change. Not only in India, but even in the United States of America through the Civil Rights Movement. You can change laws, but people can still be racist. They can still have hatred in their hearts. The kind of peace that Christ speaks about is a peace that brings people into a right relationship with him through faith in him and surrender to him. So here's the third lesson, this passage of scripture gives us a clear picture of dying to self. The next time somebody asks me, what does it mean to pick up your cross and follow Christ? I'm going to point them to Matthew chapter five, verses 38 through 48. I'm gonna point them there. George Mueller was a Christian evangelist who started an orphanage in England in the uh, 1800s. During his lifetime, it said that he cared for over 10,000 orphans. And we've gotta remember, this was before government subsidies. This, this was when the only thing he could do was pray, and God would provide. And Mueller wrote these words about himself. There was a day when I died, utterly died. Died to George Mueller and his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since I, And since then I have studied only to show myself approved to God. Did you notice the order? He died to self. Then he died to the approval of man. He even died to the approval of people within his brethren. And then he studied to show himself approved. This is, this passage of scripture gives us a clear picture of what that is. Final lesson the, the key to extra mile living is to have a love for our enemies. Look at verses forty three through forty eight. as your heavenly Father, is perfect. In these verses, the reason I'm not going to take time to explain them fully is because he's just basically saying in the positive what he just said in the negative. In the negative, he said, this is how you, what you've got to do. You, you've got to turn the other cheek, give away your cloak, go the extra mile, be willing to give away, die to self. And right here, he's giving us the key to doing that. And the key is found in loving Who? Your enemies. To love your enemies. Church, let's look at us for a second. Do we really love our enemies? Do we love those who voted on the other side of the aisle? Do we love those who are struggling with sexual identity issues? Do we love those who have a different view on when life begins? Aren't those people that if we're honest with ourselves that we would consider enemies? Jesus really digs deep here, doesn't he? Oh, it's easy to love those that are like you, that vote like you, look like you, act like you, think like you. It's easy to love those people, right? I don't have time today to go to the the Good Samaritan, but this week, go read that parable. It gives us a picture of what that kind of love is supposed to look like. Verse 48, you, therefore, (laughs) must be perfect. Anybody feel perfect this week? As your Heavenly Father is perfect, how is that even possible? I think the key is found in that word love. To love your enemies. You see, we never look more like Christ than when we love people who are far from him because that's what he did for every single one of us. Gosh, I... I, there's so much more that could be said here, but, but this idea of love, it's that idea of agape love. It's a love that's not given because there's anything affectionate in us. There's a love that's not given because we have anything in kind with Christ. It's not, it's not a love that's given because we're beautiful. It's a love that's given because we're sinners separated from him. The Bible declared, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Jesus declares, he looks at his disciples and in turn for us, as we read his word, he says, be perfect As your Heavenly Father is perfect, and the only thing that I can begin to even say is that that we begin to chase that perfection when we're willing to love those who are far from Christ and really far from us. That's the key to extra mile living. Now, what are we going to do about it? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the love you give us and the opportunity we have to serve you. It's a tough passage of Scripture, Lord, for us to digest It's a tough passage of scripture, even more importantly, Lord, for us to walk out of these walls and live. God, for in loving people, truly loving people, we have to speak truth. And truly loving people, Lord, we have to preach the gospel. And truly loving people, Lord, we have to look for ways in order to serve, in order to gain a right to do those things. So, So, Lord, help us to love people the way you've loved us, with truth and grace. Help us, Lord, as your followers of Christ, not to walk out of this room demanding rights and pointing to promises that are given by men, but to point to the promises of your word that tell us you'll be with us always, that you'll raise us up on the last day, that there's nothing that can be done to us that can separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ. Lord, help us to walk out of here with those promises, with that truth planted deep in our souls. And God, if we're going to be these extra-mile livers, these extra-mile Christians, can point out in our own hearts the things that we're relying on too much. Lead us into points of repentance right now. We pray these things in your Son's most precious name. Amen.